Well, last Sunday, we began exploring what it would, what it could look like when the messianic promises of Jesus really uh, become fulfilled in our lives when they're, when they're lived out. By that, what I, what, what I mean by that is, you know, it's easy for us to read our Bibles, to listen to sermons, to, to go through processes, and to hear messages uh, about Jesus, messages from the Bible, and, and not really see how it really makes a difference in my life. I, I think one of the saddest things uh, that I can imagine is that we go to church week in and week out, that we claim to be Christians, that we read our Bibles, that we hear scripture, that we study scripture, and yet not see it actually make a difference in our life, not see it actually affect our lives. And so what we started doing last week was to look specifically at, at some of the messianic, by messianic we, need the, we mean uh, prophecies about the Messiah, about Jesus, and how they actually work when they start to get, get applied in our lives. Specifically, Jesus got up when he was inaugurating his ministry, early his ministry, and he, he quoted from the prophet Isaiah. In our Bibles, that would be specifically he read from Isaiah 61. And uh, we looked uh, some time ago in depth at Isaiah 61 and what it meant uh, when Jesus got up and he talked about this exchange that would take place, that he would cause to take place as he was the Messiah. In other words, um, he came as the Messiah not to just leave us where we were, not to just offer us some sort of promise for the future and some fire insurance so that we would feel better about ourselves for the eventual disaster that would take place. But instead, he came to usher in a new reality and a new kingdom. And I think, unfortunately, what we've done, what we've had a tendency to do uh, throughout church history is that we've embraced Jesus as the Messiah for our future, but we have rejected him as the Messiah for our present. We have embraced that one day I will be saved, one day I will escape hell, one day I will escape uh, punishment, but right now I've just got to live through all the mess and I'm just sort of doing this by myself and I'm going to sing these cheerful songs that's going to encourage me and get me through. And yet Jesus, what he declared was, I'm not just here for your future, I'm here for your right now. So we've been looking at where the rubber meets the road. When, when the messianic work of Christ is applied into our everyday, right now, existence. Last week, uh, we noted uh, that, that Jesus talked about, uh, or he had this interaction with, uh, with this man that uh, others didn't really want to uh, have anything to do with. Others didn't really see him as viable, and yet Jesus took this blind man and he made him whole. Now, here at North Place, we, we have and we are all committed to what we call our daily twenty. Um, by the way, I haven't been here for a little while. I I've been traveling. How, how are you guys doing with your daily 20? Is it still happening? Is it happening every day? It's our commitment. Our commitment to one another. If you're a part of North Place Church, if this is your church, then we have made a commitment to one another that we're all going to 
participate in a daily 20. Some of you are looking at me like you're, I don't know what, I don't know what you're talking about, about a daily 20. Perhaps you're new to North Place or, or you're new in the last few weeks or months. And, and what the daily 20 is, is it's a commitment that we make to one another uh, that we're going to be in this disciple process together. Now, I, I said it last week, it is true about us, we do a lot of things at North Place. We, we do a lot of things, but what we are is a disciple-making community. Let me say that again. We do a lot of things, but what we are is a disciple-making community. What do you mean we do certain things? Well, we do some things because we have been commanded by the Bible in Scripture to do certain things. We care for the poor. We care for those who are without because we have been commanded by Scripture to care for those who are without. We do that because we have been commanded to do that. Some things we don't do because we've been commanded to do it. Some things we just do because we like to do it. We have donuts every Sunday. We don't do that because Krispy Kreme is recorded in Scripture. I've looked deep into the Greek and Hebrew. I can't find it, believe it or not. I think it's related to the word manna, but I'm not certain. I can't. I can't, I can't really say that. We, we do that because we like to do that, right? So there's things that we do because we've been commanded to do it. There's certain things that we do because we like to do it. But, but what we are is a disciples-making community. And by that I mean everything that we do is filtered through the lens of is that helping us to make disciples? And so when we talk about our daily 20, that's our basic commitment that we made to one another that we're all gonna do this as a part of our disciple become process we are going to commit ourselves and again for those of you who don't know what a daily 20 is what it what it it's not complicated it basically means that we've made a commitment to one another concerning 20 minutes a day it's a starting point some of you some of you your disciple making process has you spending multiple hours a day in some of these activities but this basic commitment entry point for all of us is that we're going to spend at least five minutes in prayer all of us are going to do that, at least, at least five minutes. We're going to spend five minutes in worship, five minutes just adoring Jesus, just uh, being like that groom, looking and see him come into the room and respond to that. We're going to spend five minutes in worship. We're going to spend five minutes in prayer. We're going to spend at least five minutes in the Word. I'm going to spend at least five minutes reading the Word. And then I'm going to spend five minutes meditating on the Word, meditating on what God is speaking to me. I hope that this week... You have spent some time meditating on this concept of beauty for ashes. That's what we have entitled this series. And I, I believe God is wanting to speak to us about this exchange that takes place as he exchanges beauty for ashes. Or specifically from Isaiah 61, uh, he exchanges from ashes on our head to a crown of beauty. Last week we looked at that blind man and we saw what Jesus did for him and this week we're going to push a little bit further into um, this series you know this past week as I've been meditating on we, what we learned last Sunday I, I remember that we learned that a person's suffering in other words what's going on in a person's life isn't necessarily an indication of their sinfulness remember the story last week from 
uh, that, that we read from Scripture, there were people there who thought that the man was blind because of his sinfulness. Their theology had taught them that the only way that a person would be afflicted or cursed was that they had sinned. And so therefore they classified everybody in their life based on uh, their sinfulness. In other words, whatever was wrong with them had to be an indication of their sinfulness. And yet we learn from Scripture, Jesus taught us that just because a person is suffering, just because a person is going through something, it doesn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily an indication of their sinfulness. We, we also learned when we looked at John chapter 9 that, um, that look, the disciples, when they saw the man, they, they were more interested in explaining why he was getting what he deserved rather than helping him. I was challenged this week in my own life. How many times have I been more interested in classifying someone, uh, trying to figure out why they're getting what they deserve rather than helping them? All week, I've, you know, I, I preach these messages. Uh, we share this journey together. But I, I, hear, I hear these words echoing in my heart as I meditate on it all week. And all week, I've been meditating on that that idea that, man, how many times am I responding to a person and instead of responding to them out of compassion and love and how can I help them, I'm responding to how, what's, why are they the way they are? Am I the only one, <laughs> am I the only one that does that? Why are you this way? Nobody else does that? I do that. Why are you this way rather than how can I help this person? Of course, the, the Pharisees, the religious people, they were, even though Jesus healed the guy and he could see, the Pharisees didn't even want to acknowledge his healing because it didn't, it happened on the Sabbath. It didn't happen according to their rules, so they wouldn't even say he was healed. And I wonder how many times I'm not willing to acknowledge the miracle that God is doing in somebody's life because they don't fit my theology. They don't fit my view of the world. They don't fit the way things ought to be. There's a set of rules and cultural practices and my understanding of the Bible. And if it doesn't fit that, then I don't even acknowledge it. I don't acknowledge the miracle that God is doing. Well, that's what we talked about last Sunday. And we learned a term called attributive dignity. And attributive dignity is what Jesus practiced in that story that we read last week. And attributive dignity is this. It is the intentional and active choice to push past distortion and see individuals as image bearers and then to call them to that place that God always designed them to be as image bearers. That's what Jesus practiced in the story that we read last week. And it's what he practice in the story that we're going to look at today. It is the practice to push back the distortion, whether the distortion is their sin, whether the distortion is culture and society, whatever it is, Jesus pushed past the distortion field. He saw them for who God created them to be. He acknowledged and called them forward into that. And that's exactly who he's called us to be. That's what the process of moving from ashes to beauty really is. This week, I want us to read from Luke chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 36. It says this, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went, Jesus, went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. 
She stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, in other words, he's thinking this, is this, if this man were a prophet, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owned, excuse me, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts, the debts, debts, debts. That's a hard word to say in English. <laughs> that was funny. If I were saying it in Zulu or Afrikaans, I could say it perfectly clearly. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt, forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see, do you see this woman? If you haven't got it yet, this series is all about seeing and being seen. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We've already learned together that some time ago, the expression beauty for ashes or crown of beauty for ashes was an identity exchange between a person who, who was undone. A person who was in a place of grief and brokenness. A person who really was at the end of themselves. Beauty for ashes or a crown of beauty for ashes was an expression that means I'm, I'm taking this person who has at a place, who has at a place of undoneness and I am restoring to them life and joy and peace. I'm changing the identity the location of this person. They have been in a state of being undone and I'm taking them from that place of being undone to a place of being perfectly complete. 
going from that place of saying, I'm at the end of myself. I've lost everything. I cannot go on. I have nothing to offer. The ashes were a visible sign to everyone everywhere that you had nothing to add. That when you came into the room, they had to accommodate you because you brought no accommodation with you. That you were out of grace. That you were out of peace. That you had lost everything. And yet when Jesus says that I've come to place a crown of beauty on your head, what he was saying is that you are no longer undone, but you are made complete. I am restoring you. I'm giving you peace. I'm giving you purpose. I'm giving you covering. I'm giving you joy. I'm giving, I'm giving you what you have nothing left to give to others. Jesus was saying, you are mine. You are royalty. You are not empty. You are not empty. You are full. And not only are you full, but you are overflowing. You bring inherent value into every room you enter. And everyone should know, not that you are broken, but that you are beautiful. Not that you are incomplete, but that you have been made perfect. This episode that we read and that we find in Luke chapter 7 verses 36 through 50 is a beautiful example of attributive dignity. It is a beautiful example of exactly the work that Jesus does for us. It's an example of beauty for ashes. It's an example of exactly how Jesus works in our life every day, in every circumstance, in every situation. Let me sum the passage up for you this way. This passage is saying to us the most beautiful expressions of worship come from those whose self-awareness most fully acknowledges their undoneness. Let me read that again. This passage is teaching us that the most beautiful expressions of worship come from those whose self-awareness most fully acknowledges their undoneness. This passage is really a comparison between this man named Simon, who is a Pharisee, and this woman who is known throughout the community as a sinner. Let me try to restate or repackage that first statement because I want you to walk away from here today and I really want you to be able to remember it. I'm gonna, let me, let me restate it this way. The more I acknowledge how undone I am, the more I am able to demonstrate God's beauty. The more I am able The more I am able to acknowledge how undone I am, the more I am able to demonstrate God's beauty. Somewhere along the line, friend, I believe that we lose touch with exactly what God has done for us. And that really is what this story is all about. When you study your Bible, you're often looking for 
parallels that are made in Scripture. The, the biblical writer uses parallels as a way of teaching us something. And this passage really is about parallels. It's about two different types of people. Look at the parallels in the Scripture. One, there is a Pharisee, and the other, there is a sinner. The, the, the Pharisee is known for his righteousness. He is known for having it all together. He's known for doing the right things, for being at the right places, for saying the right things, for having the right things. He's known for being good. He's known for being right. He's known for being righteous. On the other hand, compared to this Pharisee, we have a sinner, someone who is known for their failure, someone who is known for being undone, someone who is walking around with ashes all over them that everyone can look at and identify this person is broken. So this really is the comparison between one who is known for their righteousness and one who is known for their brokenness. And as you look at the parallels in the scripture, you see some interesting things. One has the capacity to honor Jesus with his wealth. But if you read the story, as much as he honors Jesus with his wealth, he's withholding his affection. He throws a feast in Jesus' honor. He invites Jesus and his friends. He brings Jesus into the house. They're reclining at the table. They had some lazy boys there. They were, that's not really the way it was. They were kind of sitting around on cushions. Doesn't look comfortable in the paintings. They're reclining at the table in his wealth, in all that he had in the appearance of how you would honor a rabbi when he comes to your town or a great teacher. He was honoring Jesus with his wealth, but as the story unfolds, we see that he withholds from Jesus his heart. He honors Jesus with the outward trappings of righteousness and doing the right thing at the right time with the right people. But he withholds from Jesus his affection, his love, his heart. So while one is known for their righteousness and one has the capacity to put on the display of honor, the other one. The one that is known for their brokenness, the one that is known for their sin, the one walking around with ashes on their head. The one who doesn't have the wealth and the capacity or the status to invite Jesus to the party lavishes Jesus with her affection and withholds nothing from him. Look at the parallel. One who has everything to offer puts on a great show but withhold what really matters. And the other one who has nothing to offer gives everything she has. For the first, for the man, for the righteous man, for the Pharisee, was actually the appearance of honor. Or, or get this, it was on, oh, this is the way I like to see it, it was honor with a catch. It was Jesus, I'll honor you, I'll invite you to my house, I'll invite you near, I'll spend money on you, but I'm not going to give you my heart. I'm withholding my heart because I'm still trying to figure out, can I trust you? See, I've told you, 
as we study our Bibles, you don't read the Bible in a vacuum or read a Bible in the context. And so when you read the context of this chapter of Scripture, what you know that this chapter of Scripture is really all about, it's story after story after story when people are trying to figure out who is Jesus. They've seen Jesus do miracles. They've seen him raise the dead. They're trying to figure out who Jesus is. In fact, the story, the episode right before this one was when John the Baptist had sent his disciples to come and ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Because everyone in Jesus' world is getting frustrated because he's doing miracles, but he's not leading a political revolt. And that's really what they wanted him to do. He was was doing signs and wonders and miracles, but he wasn't the Messiah that they really wanted. What they wanted was a political revolution. They wanted to overthrow Rome. They wanted power. And Jesus wasn't behaving the way they thought he should behave, so they were struggling to figure him out. Even John the Baptist. John, the one who had baptized Jesus, remember the story. And when he baptized Jesus, this voice from heaven affirms Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist, even when he was in his mother's womb and his mother came in proximity to Jesus' mother while Jesus was in the womb, the Bible says that John even recognized him then. He leapt inside his mother's womb. That's how much of an intimacy and a connection there was between John and Jesus. And yet in this moment, John was frustrated because Jesus wasn't behaving like the Messiah that he wanted him to be. And so this whole chapter is really all about people trying to figure out, is Jesus really the Messiah? So that's why Simon, the Pharisee, invites Jesus into his house and puts on the display of honor, but was withholding something. And the story is really all about Jesus cutting to what was going on in Simon, what was causing him to withhold something from Jesus. So on the one hand, you have this man who is putting on an appearance of honor, but really it's honor with a catch. It's Jesus, I'll throw you a party if you'll perform the way that I want you to perform. I'll have a party for you if you do the party trick. This is the church in 2021. We'll have a party for Jesus if Jesus will show up and do the party tricks. Somebody needs to write a book about this. Somebody needs to get on YouTube or Facebook and make a video and put it out there to the world. We need to be rebuked. We need a prophet to speak to us. Instead of wanting money from us, they need to speak to us truth. Because this is what we've done. We've created a church and we've said, Jesus, show up and do party tricks for us. Come heal me. Come turn water into wine. Give me my own personal word, Jesus. Come show up and do the party trick. That's what Simon was really after. It's the appearance of honor, not real honor, because it withholds the heart. So on the one hand, you've got the one who is giving the appearance of honor, who's doing all the right stuff, whose righteousness is built on his own capacity to follow the rules and do all the stuff. And on the other hand, you have this sinner. Everybody knows that she's a sinner. Simon knows she's a sinner. Simon is shocked if he was really a prophet, if he really was who he said he was, he would know, he would know that this woman, this woman who is touching him is a sinner. She's shaming him. 
everyone knows she's supposed to have her head covered and yet she's let down her hair and, and she's using her hair to wash his feet. She's making a fool of herself and she's making a fool of him. You have the one who chooses to put on the appearance of honor and then you have the other, the other who really doesn't care what anybody thinks. One who was withholding everything because he was waiting to see if Jesus would perform the party trick. If Jesus would do what he wanted him to do or needed him to do or thought he should do. And you had the other who knew exactly who Jesus was. The other who forced herself into the room to the party that she wasn't even invited to. I'm telling you folks, I started trying to warn you last week, you got to understand, North Place is a church where people are going to come who don't belong here. By our religious standards, they don't belong here. They're not following the rules. They don't look the right way. They don't dress the right way. They don't worship the right way. They're coming. I'm telling you, they're coming. And if it's not going to work for you, this isn't the right church for you. They're coming, they're coming, they're coming. They're not coming because of anything that we're doing. They're coming because God is at work and he desires desperately to gather his children. And he's doing it, he's doing it by his spirit. And they're coming, they're coming. They're going to push themselves into a party they haven't even been invited to. I'm telling you, I'm telling you a day is coming where we stop relying on gimmicks and trips, tricks and marketing and begging people to come to church. I'm telling you when Jesus... Jesus comes in the room when we really know who he is and we really put him at his place. The doors are going to be knocked down because people who have ashes all over them are going to be drawn to what they can't get anywhere else. What they can't get at the bottom of a bottle. What they can't get in drugs. What they can't get in their sexuality. What they can't get anywhere else. They're going to come because they're going to recognize that this Messiah has what no one else has. She forced her way into the room and she didn't care. She didn't care what anyone thought about her worship. She didn't care about what anyone thought about her tears. She was a mess. Can you imagine how many tears it takes to wash somebody's feet? Now, I've cried. And I've even ugly cried. But I can't imagine how many tears it takes to wash somebody's feet. And yet, because this sinner knew exactly who Jesus was, she was willing to humiliate herself and empty herself. Is it possible, I'm going to ask you a question. Is it possible that the greatest dignity is discovered In the places of our greatest humility? Seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? We think dignity comes by what we project, by our expressions of power, by our demonstrations of control. How well we control ourselves, how, how we project our wealth and our power and our status and our ability to demonstrate that we have mastered certain things. And yet this story teaches us quite the opposite. That the greatest beauty 
was found in the person who seemed the most out of control, the most humiliated, the most undignified. Get that. The greatest dignity was, according to Jesus, was expressed by the one who seemed the most undignified. And the one who was showing the most dignity was the one who Jesus said, hmm, Simon, maybe, maybe we should think about this a little bit. Who really loves me the most? I came in the room and you stood at the front. Praise Jesus. The worship band has started. The sound clock has ended. Yes, Lord, I love you. I care about you. You didn't even You didn't even wash my feet. I came off the dirty street. I came in the room. You didn't even have a servant back there to pour water on my dirty stinky feet. It was that you just let me walk in. Who loves me more? You say you love me. You thrown this party. You didn't anoint my head with oil. Remember what we learned from Isaiah 61, the common practice when someone came to your house was you anoint their head with oil. You didn't anoint my hair with oil. This woman didn't even think she was worthy, although she had this alabaster box full of expensive perfume. She didn't even think she was worthy. She got down at my feet. You didn't even greet me when I walked in the door. You let me just walk in. Come on, South Africans, this is where I know you shout because you get offended when somebody doesn't greet you. This is your favorite, this is your part of the sermon, South Africa. I've offended so many of you because I behave just like this old raunchy American. I just walk in the room. I don't even acknowledge your existence. I know half of you are hanging on by a thread at this church because pastor walked through and didn't even say anything to me. I get it. This is your favorite part of the sermon. Come on, say, shout amen. I came in the room and you didn't even greet me with a holy kiss. And yet this woman, I can't, I can't even get to the, to the lazy boy to sit down because she just keeps kissing my feet. Who loves me? I've spent three years begging you to worship. I've spent three years begging you to not get here late. I'm just going to be real with you. I've spent three years begging you to not get here late and not act like you're at a funeral when the music starts. Oh, Pastor, that's just our culture. That's just what Who's in love? Oh, that's how the kids act. That's how the immature acts. That's how the undignified acts. Yeah, Jesus said, if you're going to be in my kingdom, you're going to have to come like a, come on, that wasn't everybody. If you're going to come into my kingdom, you're going to come like a, how can we sing that last song we sang today and still sit in our seats? I don't get it. I don't care what your personality is. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your culture is. You're a mess. I'm a mess. If it hadn't been for Jesus, we would be nothing. And the more that we will get that, the more that crown's going to be put on our head. You don't understand, Pastor. I've spent my whole life getting this dignified. 
I've spent my whole life building this persona. I spent hours getting this makeup just painted on just right. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think we're the most beautiful, honey, when we're crying that stuff off our face. I think we're the most beautiful, sir, when we're not standing there stoic and dressed and with our tie, just perfect. I wore a tie just for this message today. I think we're the most beautiful, the most glorious, the most dignified when we just embrace our mess and say, but without Jesus, without Jesus, know exactly who I am and where I am and what I am. Jesus said, I'll give you beauty for ashes. And get this, everybody in the room wanted Jesus to do the party trick. That's why he was there. They want him to do the party trick. But the woman who left the room that actually received the blessing was the one who had came in and surrendered herself. I want you to stand with me all across this place. I don't know what this is going to look like for you this week. I don't know how it's going to be lived out or fleshed out in your life. Some of you in your mind, you've already moved on. Ah, it's another sermon. It's all right. It's another message. But I just, I just believe there's a few of us here today who like Simon. Simon. Simon really, we dismiss him. It's easy to be critical of him. But he did what a lot of Pharisees wouldn't do. He at least began to explore who is this Jesus. Some of us are like, like Simon. And the Lord, he showed up at the party, not because we were righteous. He showed up at the party, not to do a trick. He showed up at the party because as much as he loved sinner woman, he loves us. And he looks at us and he says, let me, let me pull you close to me and let me show you something. You think your dignity is this great display of wealth and this great demonstration of your righteousness. Let me show you real beauty. It's a mess. Who says, I know I'm a mess. I'm going to embrace my mess and I'm going to give it to Jesus because I know that I know that I know who and what I would be without him. And get this, everyone else left the party without a trick, but the lady left the party with a blessing. Jesus said, your faith, your response to me is not exactly what you were looking for it to do. Go sin no more. Peace. Go in peace. The end result of the exchange of beauty for ashes is that I live and walk and dwell in peace. Close your eyes for just a moment. Father, I thank you so much for what you've done for us. I thank you so much for what you've done for me. Lord, forgive me for my own righteousness, my own self-righteousness. Forgive me for all of my theology and my thinking and my upbringing and my culture and my, all my stuff that's become a barrier to responding to you.
Jesus, I surrender. I surrender. I surrender. I surrender.